Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Welcome back to the Janice Dean Podcast. Happy New Year. I hope you're all enjoying the holidays. 2023 was a wonderful year for the podcast with some really incredible guests. I laughed, I cried, I learned something new, and I look forward to doing more of this for 2024. But before we jump ahead, I thought it would be fun to look back, or in this case, listen back to some of my favorite episodes from this past year before we ring in the new year. These were also some of your favorite conversations and moments that inspired great comments and thumbs up on social media. So let's get to it. It's a bird. It's a plane. No, it's actor and filmmaker Dean Cain, who not only had me over to his house when I visited Las Vegas in July of 2023, but he also promised to come on the podcast for a really wide ranging discussion on his journey to being a huge Hollywood star and how even though Superman was the role of a lifetime, he's always able to stay true to himself and grounded when it comes to knowing what's really important in life. Here is the one and only Dean Kane on the Janice Dean podcast. Dean Kane, you made the Dean's list. I love, well, I was on the Dean's list just by virtue of my name, I think, because <laughs> there's a Dean and a Dean. So I figured I was on that list anyway, just by, by virtue of Dean Martin, who I'm named after. Is that true? That's absolutely true. My mother, who you've met, who's slightly insane and lovely and incredible. <laughs> I love your mom. Yeah, she, she loved Dean Martin. And uh, I was supposed to be a girl. I was going to be named Deneen. Oh. Um, and then I came out a boy and uh, she went with Dean after Dean Martin. So I love that uh, little connection. I love she that. She should have named me after Janice Dean, but since I'm six years older than you. <laughs> oh, come on. And w- I mean, full disclosure here, you and I saw each other last week in Las Vegas. Yes. <laughs> and you are just one of the kindest people because I wanted to do this podcast with you. And then I let you know that I was going to be in Las Vegas last week for a, you know, belated 50th birthday party by three years with my girlfriend, Nira. And you were so kind. You're like, come see me. We're having a 4th of July party because I just moved to Las Vegas and we came and it was amazing. Thank you for coming, first of all. But you are the nicest. You're not only the nicest dean, but you're the nicest person out there. So uh, it was a, it was a no brainer to invite you. And I was so happy that you could come see my new home and that we could spend a little time in Las Vegas running around you and myself and Nira and, and some of my family. We had a blast. I did. So we went for the 4th of July party and your mom and dad were there, your son and your brother. I love that you're so connected with your family. Tell me about that. That's a big thing, you know, and and it's one of those things that I think is so important and gets lost today with the way things have gone and um, the way people are trying to tell you how to raise your kids and what to do and, you know, and and, and putting in place laws telling you about, you know, if you don't affirm your child's gender at, you know, seven years old, Mm. um, that you're some sort of a terrible parent. My parents 
My family are super tight and connected. Um, I've had tremendous support throughout my entire life. It's one of the reasons I was able to, you know, uproot myself and go to Princeton University and play football and do all those things because I knew I had the support of my family, a hundred percent. So much support, in fact, that they moved out to Princeton my senior year and went to every single football game home and away they were the first people in the in the stadiums we'd be pulling in three hours before the game my parents would already be driving in oh that is so important and you know growing up i had good parents but there were times where they didn't show up to those things and Mm. i listen i love my mom my mom's still with us and we're closer than we ever have been But that's something that I took with me and decided early on when I had children that I was going to show up for those things. Those are so important. And to hear you tell me that your parents moved uh, to see your games at school brings tears to my eyes. It brought tears to my eyes. It was the greatest thing in the world pulling into Davidson in North Carolina. You know, we just got off a plane or, you know, the night before we got off a plane and we're down there. We're pulling in. I'm listening to my little my my Walkman. That's right. I, <laughs> I said remember. Walkman. <laughs> and getting ready for the game as we're coming in, somebody nudges me. My buddy sitting next to me points. There's one car in the stadium parking lot. It's my parents. Oh. And I was like, "Yep." But it, it it does. It gives you that ability. I mean, they because they didn't they weren't able to see my games. They got to see maybe one a year on TV uh, or came to one ever before that. You know, so they never got to see my games. They would have to hear how I did afterward and. It was rough because they were at everything. My dad coached everything. So I made absolutely sure that I was that exact kind of parent. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I coached every one of my son's teams or was a coach on the team. Um, and I I mean, I remember driving, I'm sorry, filming in Nova Scotia. And I remember filming all night on a Friday night until the sun came up in Nova Scotia. When the sun came up, we were done filming because it was a night shot. And uh, I got on a plane. I slept on the plane from Nova Scotia to L.A., Landed in L.A., drove, uh, drove or got a car to my son's football game where I, where I coached it, then took him home, had him for the night. Uh, and then the following day, um, I, I returned him to his mom. This is when we shared custody. Um, and then uh, and then I, I got on a plane and flew back to Nova Scotia in order to arrive just in time to uh, to film the whole next day. Mm. And I was there. Yeah. And he just took it for granted, which I loved. I wanted him to take that for granted, hmm. to have the strength to know my dad's going to be there. Of course he's going to be there. Oh. I mean, it's so much so that even when he went to college uh, in High Point University, where he just graduated from High Point University in North Carolina, I became an innovator in residence there. I teach film and acting and, and screenwriting and stuff there um, a couple times a year. So I'm or, or two or three times a year. Um, so I'm there all the time. His freshman year, I visited him 11 times. He was like, Dad, you can bring that number down a little bit. <laughs> He'll remember that. He will. He'll know that. He knows it. Next up, someone who had quite a year personally and professionally with a New York Times best-selling book, countless appearances on the Fox News channel, and competing in his final wrestling match. He is just as awesome in person as he is on TV. Here is some of my awesome conversation with the terrific Tyrus. I've wanted to interview you for a long time. Um, I'm so in awe of you because... You're just kind of a, well, you're a regular guy. I know you have this big, incredible career of yours. You're famous. You've written best-selling books. You're on Gutfeld. 
but you are approachable, you're kind, you care about your family, and you care about this country. Yeah, well, I've been fired a lot. So, <laughs> no, and that's sometimes because it's very easy when you experience success to where people watch you, mm-hmm. like um, like a crowd, mm-hmm. and they'll cheer for you and they'll love you, and you will eat that up, and you will create a false representation of what of who you really are yes because once that's over that crowd leaves and you don't have anything Hmm. so i've experienced that because i remember the first time i'd hear crowd you get a big head and you think you're bigger than your family you're bigger than your friends because everywhere you go somebody wants to buy your dinner or they want to take a picture of you all that's superficial Hmm. it does not last and you will be a shiny object for a little while and then a shinier object comes along so you have to take that um you have to think about that. Every time you are successful in something, you have to remember uh, it probably won't last. So, Where does that humility come from? I had to learn it the hard way. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think the first couple times, I was very good at being a self-sabotager for a long time because I would get to a certain point and just expect it to maintain that way. Mm. And uh, usually when you're young, and like especially me with football, I started getting awards and letters from colleges. So, you know, I didn't really have to. I started believing the thing. If you're good enough, they'll bend grades for you. They'll do this for you. Uh, a lot of uh, false hopes and star stuff that comes from getting a little bit of attention. So you have to, you have to fail at it horribly, and I, and I did. And I think that is when, even with wrestling, when I got fired from the WWE, I was like, ah, no big deal. I'll figure something out. Um, during that time of figuring it out. <clears throat> there was it was times where I was literally ready to go work at, at Pizza Hut and make pizzas. So you have to do what you have to do. But when you're going through those tough times at rock bottom, mm-hmm. that's when you know who you are. And I like that guy a lot better mm-hmm. because he's smart about what he does, his choices. He slows down when he makes his choices because he everything has to count. And he doesn't take anything for granted. But you had that in you because I yeah. find <clears throat> that, you know, there are still people that have tremendous egos and it's part of this personality disorder, I think. Yeah. So I think you always... You had that in you. Maybe you had a taste of something. I think everyone that gets in this business, this broadcasting world, you have to have a little bit of, like, I'm going to prove this. you got to have a chip. You know, there's a little bit of narcissism in it because you have to really believe in yourself Mm -hmm. because you have to think what you have to say is more important than the 10,000 other people (laughs) who want your seat. So there is a certain to that. But I think just because the way I grew up – my mother didn't let us, didn't give us anything. Everything we got, we had to earn. Hmm. So even something as simple as like wanting, you know, my kids, and I, I catch myself all the time. Uh, my daughter is adorable, and she'll give me the, like, Daddy, I really want um, this action figure, this, this Squishmallow. And I'm like, okay, let's go to the bookstore and get it. And then as I'm driving to the bookstore, I'm like, what have you done to earn this? Yeah. And then, you know, she'll be like, well, I love you. I said, oh, well, the price of your love is a Squishmallow? So then I have to figure out, well, how are we going to earn this? Yes. You know, and, and so, but I get caught up in it mm. because you like being able to go be able to, if your daughter asks for something, you can go get it for her, which is a nice feeling. But when I was growing up, if I was like, hey, I want this G.I. Joe action figure, she's like, great. You got to mow three lawns and you got to do this and that. And if I wanted it, I had to earn it. So I think that's, that humbles you quite a bit. Yeah. You know, because you just don't have the ability to take things for granted. Tell me about your mom. Uh, my mom works. She she worked. I mean, all she did was work, and she had to. And she was hard because she was trying to raise two boys by herself. And on top of that, um, she was trying to raise two black 
young men without any experience or reference points. Mm. So a lot of the times, um, a lot of the social issues that would affect me and my brother, she didn't understand, not out of ignorance. She just didn't know because she that wasn't her life. Mm -hmm. And her one experience uh, with a black man was horrible. My father was extremely abusive and, you know, and because of her courage, uh, I didn't end up like him because she could have laid down and just, but she had the courage to leave. But um, so she was hard on us. But I, I understand why, because <clears throat> when you're learning as you're going with, with kids, and as I found out as a parent, there is times when you just don't know what to do or how to reach them. And, you know, and then at the same time, you have to deal with two, especially myself, I was angry. I was mad that. I never had a dad come to the games or my mom had to work a double. She was a nurse. She had to work nights and days to keep living in California, not a, not a cheap place to live. So she had to work all the time. So she wasn't able to go to baseball games and stuff like that. And I think that's where a lot of the performing in front of the crowd, because I wanted someone to cheer for me. Yes. So I would become the crowd favorite. Yes. You know, I'd hit a home run with a flare or make a dive or do something to be noticed or say something funny. Uh, and that's where I started getting comfortable with the crowd more as like instead of one-on-one -on -one things i'd rather have five people cheer for me than one person watch me mm -hmm. do you mourn that relationship with your dad no no uh one of the th and i tell this to and it, interesting the other day i got a uh i don't look at social media very much but i got a tweet from a guy who said i just finished your book and he said what you said about your dad i wish i would have said mm -hmm. i think the biggest thing is that you have to forgive them and i know people get confused sometimes not forgive them in the sense like approach them and say father i forgive you for right. being a complete d-bag <laughs> and never being there for anyone in your entire yeah. life but yourself you have to forgive them for yourself you have to let it go you yes. have to say this happened we can't change it this is what's good about it this is what was bad about it and this is what do i need to do to fix it and for me I just looked at his body of work as a human being and thanked my mother for not being making me be around him because chances are I could have ended up just like him. Mm -hmm. And the last thing I wanted to do was repeat um, the lost opportunity that he had at being somebody. Uh, there's more important things than bars and women. And, you know, my mother instilled that in me. But once I was able to say this happened and it's okay it happened and I had other once I looked back and was like man my English my history teacher Mr. Ray my football coaches baseball coaches uh, we had you know I got lucky we played outside in our neighborhood so a lot of the neighborhood dads would come out and play with us and and uh, you know sleepovers and cookouts and and uh, a few of my mom's boyfriends here and there were all right. So you look at the body of work in terms of like male role models, and I found I seeked them out. I found them. Mm -hmm. I didn't realize it at the time. Yeah. But I also realized that when I was having fun, when I was playing sports, when I was outside, I was never missing or looking for him because he was never there. You can't miss what you don't know. Right. So I think that's the biggest thing. I think sometimes young men they like to blame. Well, I didn't have a father. No, you didn't. But you there was some things in there if you focus on. Yes. And the other thing is you gotta you gotta be able to, to you gotta make your peace with it. You gotta cry it out one time or just 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 vent, get it out. Therapists are always good to talk to if you don't have uh, someone that you can rely on. But I think that was the biggest thing for me is like I never I knew what he was because I was old enough to see the abuse, so I didn't want him around. Mm. So it was never a case of like I missed him. Yes. Now there was that time when I was like thirteen and fourteen when I was like. 
feeling myself and start you start to get you know your puberty and your little like man stuff coming in and I might have thrown it at my mother like you know my, I don't know my father because of you because that's mm. you know you you act out or whatever but um, I never missed him in those terms just because of I saw what he was it's not like a lot of situations where you have a good dad and there's a divorce yes and he ends up moving to the other side of the country or whatever that's different and that's a whole different kind of uh mourning and understanding mine was i i knew what he was right away so i really didn't dwell on him too much mm-hmm. i even changed my name myself at school you did yeah when um when we moved to my junior high and they said that uh it was be uh, playing on organized sports because all the sports teams i had played on up to that we never had names on the back of our jerseys oh. so it wasn't a big deal so when i got to junior high and they're like yeah you this will be your last name and stuff and i just immediately my legal last name was clements mm-hmm. george clements jr was and i never went by junior and i was like i don't even know him so and my mom's trying so i just filled out murdoch and no one questioned me and before i knew it it was like it was on my jerseys i remember my mom goes how did you get your name (laughs) and i said i told him that's my last name and then when i got my report card it said murdoch and it just nice the the school principal was like when i made my case he was like all right young man makes sense to me i wouldn't want to rock his name either so he put he made the change and i've been i've been a murdoch ever since uh, was it the ninth grade it's a good story we'll be right back with the best of 2023 Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is PlushCare. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Right after this. My next guest has had quite the year, from the war in Ukraine to being one of the first reporters on the ground in Israel when the war broke out in October. Fox News correspondent Trey Yingst has truly seen the horrors of humanity up close and personal. But despite seeing that terror firsthand, he still manages to be so grounded and calm, being able to tell these stories while also taking care of himself and his mental health. This was one of the best conversations I've had not just this year, but really in my career. Please welcome my friend and colleague, Trey Yinkst on the Janistein podcast. Trey, thanks for being with me today. Of course. And a brave essay uh, for USA Today. What made you decide to open up about the struggles behind the scenes of being a war correspondent? My hope with writing the piece was that people would change the taboo around mental health and journalism. And I think so far it's done that. I've had so many people reach out to me and say, I've experienced similar things and I've just been too afraid to talk about it. And I want to set a new standard in the industry when it comes to speaking about mental health that our brains and how we process the information that we receive, because it's not just war correspondents that can experience difficulty when they get back from assignment. People are covering weather disasters. They're covering crime. They're covering mass shootings that take place. And as journalists, sometimes you're expected to just go back to your normal life and Mm -hmm. pretend like nothing happened. But the reality is you experience some level of trauma, and it's important to know how to process that trauma. Mm -hmm. 
I want to read this expert that says, we feel okay until we don't. For many, post-traumatic stress disorder is not a cut or a wound that stings immediately, but rather a dull scar that remains dormant until a sound or dream or a smell brings memories rushing back in a way that makes it hard to distinguish reality from imagination. I mean, it sounds like you are very well aware of, of what the triggers are. Absolutely. And I think there are a lot of misconceptions around PTSD. And people have learned about this from movies, from Hollywood. They think that it's someone that's just sitting on their couch, shaking 24-7, unable to operate in society. And that's not the reality. People have a, a wide array of symptoms. They have uh, varying degrees of this experience. For me, it's been often in the form of nightmares. It has been in the form of sounds or smells that really can transport my mind back to times where I was reporting on the battlefield. And it's often things that you don't think of. You could just be walking along the sidewalk and then just smell something and it reminds you of a location mm. with a lot of very bad memories associated with that location. And I often tell people I am hesitant to explain just how bad the things that we see in the field really are. As a war correspondent, we are often there not only for the worst day of someone's life, many, many times. We're often there for the worst of humanity. And the war in Ukraine was no different. And it actually was, in many ways, I think, some of the worst that this generation of correspondents has seen. Mm. Tell me why. When I think back over the past year, since the Russian invasion began, I think about myself in the days before it started, we were in the capital of Kyiv when this invasion kicked off. And I was a different person there. And a lot of that has to do with what I hadn't experienced yet. I will, like I said, be in a way careful of how I describe it, just because I think if you describe just the true extent of, of how graphic and, and bad war really is, mm -hmm. it's difficult for the average person to consume. But a, a warning before I even explain this, if you're listening, what I'm about to say, some of it is, is difficult to hear, but it's important because it's the reality of war. In the field, reporting, doing my job, I have seen the burned bodies of children. I have seen mass graves. I have seen the experience of People just like me, guys in their 20s, under fire, shaking, terrified about what comes next and if they'll survive. I've interviewed family members of relatives whose bodies have been dismembered. I have experienced truly hell on earth as an observer. And I always make that distinction because we're lucky. We're able to go do our jobs, tell the world what's happening, hold those in power accountable, and then leave and go sit on the beach somewhere if we like. For these innocent Ukrainians, they don't have that luxury. And so I speak out in an effort to normalize the discussion around mental health, not to make people feel sorry for me. I want people to talk about mental health in journalism so that we can continue to do this critical work that we do, making people care about stories that are thousands of miles away but make sure that we do it in a healthy way that allows us to be better journalists and better people. 
I think it's really important what you're doing. Um, you know, back in the day when I was in starting in TV, they wanted to have this sort of facade around us, right? That we would come on and we would look beautiful with the makeup and the hair. And it was, you know, kind of not real. And when I was diagnosed with multiple sclerosis, I wanted to share the story to kind of help others and go behind the scenes and say, you know what? We're real people here. You know, uh, I'm lucky to have this job and to do the job that I do, but I also want to sort of... Uh, go away from that myth of everything's perfect on television. Now, I know you have to portray what's going on in the world and the war behind you, but my point is it's important to talk to the people that do this on the TV screen because sometimes we don't feel like real people and you are coming out and saying, I do this for a living. It's it's not pretty and I want to tell you what, how it affects me. I think that's really important and also for the connection between the person that's watching you and listening to you and knowing that you're a real person, not just a person on a screen. Absolutely. I think that when people see our work in Afghanistan or Iraq or along the Gaza Strip or in Ukraine, I think they can associate us with almost an action figure. Mm. We're there on the ground, on the front, under fire in these tense moments, but we make it out and we bring the story back to the viewers. And I've had so many people in the industry even tell me, you're the most badass guy I know. <laughs> and I hesitate to say thank you because my job isn't to be this cool, macho guy who's not afraid of anything and has no empathy for the people that I'm talking to. It's actually quite the opposite. I, I want to connect with viewers so they understand that what I'm telling them is accurate and it's fair and it's truthful, but also it's human. And I think doing that with empathy is so critical. And it's something that if you don't talk about mental health, you lose. And it's something that was a wake-up call for me in the field. There was one day and at some point over the past year in Ukraine, I, I remember we were very close to the front lines and the commander we were with said, we can push up to this village that had just been liberated within the past 48 hours. And we knew it would be difficult. It would be dangerous, but important to show our viewers what it's like in an area that's just been retaken by the Ukrainians. And so we got up to this village and we were in a garden, in a little cottage, a beautiful little little village called Halushkivka. And a woman was in this house. It was one of her summer home, but this family had returned to make sure their house was still standing and everything was okay. And we were interviewing this woman and just a few hundred feet away from where she was standing and telling us her story, on the edge of her garden was a dead Russian soldier. And I remember looking at this soldier and not really thinking anything of it. I, I didn't process what I was seeing. I just looked at it. It was like, okay, there's a, another human that's dead there and let's continue on and, and not really think about it. <sighs> Reality is that's a person. And while it's a person who invaded a sovereign country, they're still a human. And I think that there's basic human decency and, and things that we need to ethically think about as reporters in the field. But emotionally, it didn't register for me. And it was a moment 
where I realized a lot of the times when I'm working in the field, the way that I process things is just to get the job done and to almost not feel anything because oftentimes what we're viewing and seeing is so painful that it's best just to not think about it. Mm. And while I think there is a, a place for that in our line of work so that we can get the job done, I think the danger is that if you bring that mindset back to your personal life and back to your job as a reporter on a day-to-day -day basis, you can become quite distant from reality. You can also become quite distant from your loved ones and your friends. It's very hard to reacclimate when you've sort of trained your mind to deal with things like that. And so you make a great point. I mean, our viewers have to know that we are human and that we're just like them. Mm. And that when we bring them a story, whether it be about uh, what's happening on the front lines in Ukraine or about a weather disaster in the United States or about crime that's happening in a, a large population center in America, we're bringing it from a place of humanity and we're trying to explain to them not just what's happening and the numbers behind it, but the impact that it has on people just like you and I. Right. And to get interviews with people that are going through this, that's difficult, too. Yeah. The best of the Janice Dean podcast returns right after this. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Finally, to wrap up the best of the Janice Dean podcast in 2023, my very dear friend and colleague who became a mom this year. And we were so incredibly happy for her. It's been a wonderful year for the co-host of Fox and Friends First and author of the Cooking with Friends cookbook, Carly Shimkus. She took time out of her busy schedule to update me on how motherhood has changed her life. And I just loved this discussion. Carly Shimkus, you made the Dean's List. Oh, thank you so much. Janice, it is so good to hear your voice. Oh, I miss you. We miss you here. Um, you know, Ashley's doing a great job in the morning with Todd. Absolutely. But you are so missed, but we're so grateful and happy that you're doing wonderfully as a new mom. Oh, thank you so much. Well, first of all, I, I, I say it's good to hear your voice. I hear more of your voice probably than ever before because all I do is watch Fox News around the clock because I'm home. <laughs> so so Brock is getting a very early education in politics. Uh, but yeah, no, I, I'm good. It, early motherhood is a wild ride. Yes. Uh, you are filled with so much love and you are so tired and you're so covered in poop and <laughs> you uh, hormones are raging and your body looks different. But at the end of the day, you have this sweet little person who just is needs you so much. And it's a wonderful experience. Oh, my goodness. I, and I remember what it was like seeing you before the birth of beautiful Brock. And yeah. it is you can't even explain it, right? You just no. No. You cannot. You you absolutely cannot explain it. That's one thing that I learned is that it really is a love like no other. And when you're in the hospital, well, first of all, the hospital experience was very, I had a C-section. So 
I go into the hospital. I wasn't nervous at all. My husband was very nervous mm. and, um, the recovery was definitely much more difficult than I expected. Yeah. Um, but it's one of the reasons it's so difficult is because, you know, you just had major surgery and all you want to do is hold and care for your baby, uh, because of that love. And it is a challenge. I know that you went through a C-section as well with both of your boys, right? Correct. Yes. And there yes. are pros and cons to both uh, natural yes. childbirth and C-sections. Um, I think Brock was like Matthew. Um, they were breech, right? Yes, exactly. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So I'm still definitely recovering from it. Um, but uh, hopefully I'll be up and running soon. <laughs> uh, you know what I was thinking about yesterday is I can't imagine parenting without the internet because <laughs> I, you Google everything. How, wow. how did, how did parents do that for centuries before the internet occurred? Yeah, it really is one of those. You've never been put into this situation and no matter how many books you read in advance, you're just not prepared. Uh, I remember, you know, Matthew had trouble, you know, he was very sniffly and almost like he had allergies early on. Yes. And yeah. I had not discovered the nose Frida yet, mm-hmm. <laughs> which is a very gross way of basically sucking the um, Snot. mucus yep. out of your child's nose. Yep. yep, yep, yep. And I remember Sean went over to a friend's house for like a beer and I was calling him within five minutes going, is something wrong with the baby? I don't know what's going yeah, on. Yeah, I know. Well, they, uh, yeah, they, babies don't have any way of like getting the congestion out of their body. Right. So now, Janice, there's a, um, a, it's a battery powered one that you could just, this is so gross. Oh, you are so lucky. You're so and lucky. you just suck it right out and you don't have to, you don't have to use your mouth. Right. It wasn't like totally mouth. There's something protecting it. So you don't have to, it doesn't go into it your is, body. If you are a mom, you know what we're talking about. You literally, there was a, constra- a contraption that was made so that you could physically take the um, the mucus out of your yeah. baby's nose by literally <laughs> sucking a tube. And it's so, uh, Sean did it. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Oh, that would be a Pete duty too. Uh, but I'm so glad so- that they've come up with the, the battery operated one. Yeah. And there's also, there's no more, uh, I don't, somebody got me actually, I think it was Kim Kern. Who's the, one of the producers for Fox and Friends first. She got me a, I was always like, oh gosh, clipping nails is yes. going to be a big issue too. Yes. So now there's just like a little nail file, but it's like, um, a battery powered one. So it's like a little buffer. Wow. And it just, yeah, I know. It's just, why didn't we think of these things? We'd be billionaires. <laughs> well, I had to use the old fashioned clippers and man, I remember that it was just, and I still, Theodore will be very angry that I say this on, on the radio, but I still clip their nails <laughs> and he's 12. <laughs> yeah. I mean, you want to know why? Because they are your sons and you will do anything for them and they will always be your baby. That's right. Even though he's 12. Uh, so tell me all about Brock. Uh, Brock is a good baby. Even when he first came out, his cry was very gentle. Aww. I was like two little like purrs. It was so it was very cute. Um, and yeah, we got we got really lucky. I mean, he's still a baby. So he certainly has learned to use his voice from time to time, but he is so sweet. He was born seven pounds, one ounce, uh, 19 and a half inches. So um, not the 
biggest baby, not the smallest, which is surprising to me because I'm tall. My husband is very tall and a big guy. So, uh, but we have a little peanut on our hands Aww. and he's got blue eyes and he's really adorable. And, and I just can't wait to see what he looks like when he grows up and watch him change and evolve. It does really happen quickly, my friend. I mean, I know a lot of people say that, like, it, it's like over in a heartbeat or an eye blink. Yeah. And it's, it is so true. I mean, I see little pictures of you and Brock and it just brings a tear to my eye because even though you're tired and these are really emotional moments, um, it is the most precious time in your life. And I think it takes time away from it to realize that. Do you know what I mean? And yes. because when you're in it, I remember Matthew, I, I had postpartum depression. I didn't realize I had it at the time. Um, yeah. Sean and I would get into very big arguments um, because, and I know you and I have talked about this, but I put so much pressure on myself to breastfeed. And if I yeah. could go back, I would probably change it. Um, and I wanted to ask you about that because I felt that the pressure came in the hospital as well. Um, they wouldn't feed Matthew until I really, wow. really gave it the college try. And that yeah. was, you know, getting, um, you know, having nurses come in and using a contraption to try to get the milk out. And yep. so I was so overwhelmed. I would cry and think I wasn't a good mom and hear him crying because he was so hungry. And that to me felt very cruel, but that's what they did. They really wanted I, to yeah. try to get you to breastfeed. So if it's okay, tell me about your experience. Yeah, absolutely. So I think that um, that happened to a lot of women. I've actually heard other women say that that happened to them. And if I could make a prediction, I would say that the medical community nurses got caught wind of that and have changed mm -hmm. because I didn't, I didn't feel any of that pressure except for one nurse who was very sweet, but very, very pro uh, breastfeeding. And um, she, it was, it was only one time in the hospital where I felt the way you did. And I actually remembered you saying this to me and me saying, no, you know what? I'm going to do what I want to do. And I did have an issue with breastfeeding. I'm um, bottle feeding Brock right now. We're using formula. Um, and my milk just didn't come in. Um, and I, it was a really painful process too. So um, I went to see a lactation consultant when I got out of the hospital and she is amazing. And she even said, listen, I'm a lactation consultant. I'm going to tell you all the pros of breastfeeding, but sometimes it just doesn't work out mm. for you. And I know from personal experience, because even though I have the job that I do, I had to formula feed my baby. Wow! So it was comforting to hear her say that and give re the real honest answer of the pros and cons. And here's how I think about it. If you are going to be the president of the United States, you will be whether you're formula fed or breastfed. <laughs> it's, it's, it's you're going to be OK. Yeah. And uh, and so I feel really lucky to not have fully experienced that. But I did experience little glimpses of it. But people certainly warned me that it does happen. So I feel lucky overall. Well, this was quite a look back at some of my favorite conversations in 2023. What an incredible year. And I am so grateful to all of you for tuning in. So here's to more sunshine, happiness, love and good fortune for the new year ahead. I can't wait to sit down for many more discussions in 2024. Thank you for listening to the Janice Dean Podcast.
Thank you to all of my listeners. If you have someone you think should make the Dean's List, let me know at Janice Dean on Twitter or Janice Dean FNC on Instagram. Or you can rate this podcast. Please subscribe, rate, and review to this podcast on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or at foxnewspodcast.com. Listen ad-free with a Fox News Podcast Plus subscription on Apple Podcasts. And Amazon Prime members can listen to this show ad-free on the Amazon Music app. And don't forget to spread the sunshine. The Will Kane Show is now dropping five episodes a week. Join Fox and Friends weekend host Will Kane as he tackles the latest headlines from his unique perspective, along with thought-provoking interviews with leading figures and live calls from viewers and listeners. Listen wherever you download your favorite podcasts.